Did I turn it on or off? Am I okay? I'm, I'm honored to be here. First of all, I'm honored to even be asked because you've got such a talented staff. You don't need any guest speakers. Um, sat out here and heard from a number of the ministers here and been encouraged. But I'm also glad to have this opportunity because, like I said, we, we have been those long-term guests. Um, people say, you know, why haven't you placed membership? I said, who wants to give up guest parking? You know, that's the best part of the deal. But actually, when I resigned from North Point Church, we were looking uh, for a new ministry position. We were living in Allen, and so we were coming here as those long-term guests. We uh, got a job with a church in Milwaukee, a great church, and went up there. And one winter was enough to say, we miss Texas. So uh, it is nice to be back here. Um, like I said, we've lived in, Tal- in Allen since we got married in 2005. So uh, our boys go to the preschool here, or they have uh, as they're growing up, and so this has just kind of been home for us. Recently, I was thinking back to my days in college. I went to Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, and in my freshman English class, the teacher had given an assignment, and we were all sitting quietly doing our work, and she was up at her desk kind of looking through some papers, and she said, Curtis, I have a question for you. And I said, yeah. And she said, why do you dislike English so much? And I said, I, I didn't know I do. And she said, well, I'm looking at your ACT scores, and language arts was your lowest. And I thought, well, I don't know that's a good measurement for determining whether you like it or not, but she actually was pretty sharp. I didn't like it. I was a biochemistry major, and so I was into math and physics and biology and all that stuff. I didn't have time for that English. and I couldn't stand my literature class, reading poetry and just don't bother me with that stuff. Give me something practical. Well, as I've gotten older, I have come to appreciate literature, especially in Uh, learning more about the Bible. The Bible is a collection of various writings and different literary styles using different literary devices. And the more we learn about that, the more it comes to life. Now, if you remember in your grammar or English days, we have things called similes. And that's where you say something is like this. Like when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Well, there's also metaphors. Metaphors is when you say it is that other thing. And we do that because that metaphor brings depth and richness to what we're talking about. The Bible is full of metaphors. One of them is when Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, throughout the Bible... Good versus evil is often described in terms of light versus darkness because the words good and evil just kind of they're a little bit too abstract for us. And so you think about light and you think about darkness and you understand that. You know what it's like to walk around in darkness and, and not know where you're going. It's not uncommon for uh, one of us to wake up in the middle of the night, my wife or I, and uh, stumble over something in the, in the bedroom. And it's because one of the boys decided they wanted to sleep in our room. So they come in there and sleep on the floor. And without that light on, you don't know it. I don't know how many times when I was preaching, I would show up at church with a black sock and a blue sock. Because on Sunday morning, I'd be getting dressed early and trying not to wake up my wife. You know the value of light and being able to see things. And so Jesus came into a world 
described as one of darkness, full of sin and selfishness and pain of violence, where people just use other people for their own advancement, their own pleasure, and then throw them away like yesterday's garbage. And so he came into that world, and he extended love and hope, and he healed people. He reached out to lepers that nobody would touch because of fear that they would get that contagious disease themselves. And he brought meaning and direction. You and I are here this morning because we have been touched by that light. Peter wrote these words, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so you and I once lived a life of darkness. We were living just like the world according to its values and its goals and its pursuits. And Jesus came along and shined a light into our life and said, hey, that's not what it's about. In between first service, second service, I was flipping through Facebook on my phone and someone had posted a quote from uh, Mark Twain, said the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you discover why. But, you know, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's shown light into our lives of why we're here, what it's all about. Think about your life B.C., before Christ. What was it like? I've got to tell you, I'm kind of embarrassed about mine. I was pursuing all the wrong stuff. What's in it for me? And thankfully, he has, over time, started to transform that and given me a different reason to live, given me joy based on things that really last and matter. Well, being kind of a geeky science guy, I got thinking about this idea of light. And so, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, I have brought a candle. So I got thinking about this idea of light and, and thinking about a, a flame and how it works. And if you'll follow with me, what's going on here is you see this light from a distance. And what's happening is little tiny, we might say, packets of energy called photons are coming off of that candle. And they are flying at you and me at the speed of light. And they come in through the lens of our eye and they hit the back the retina, the back of our eye, and they energize those cells, and those cells then send a signal to the brain, and the brain registers it and says, hey, I've seen that before. I think that's a candle. The same thing happens even if I didn't have that. The light's on in here. They, they come and they bounce off this banner here, and they bounce into our eyes, and we see that and we say, oh, I know what that is. I've seen that before. That's a banner. Those photons are at work. So as I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's what Jesus is like. Jesus radiates life and light into our lives and into the world. But as I thought about it further, I thought, you know, something else is going on. Where do those photons come from? Well, the candle is made out of petroleum products, high-energy hydrocarbons, and when we burn it, that energy is released and becomes photons. And so what's happening is, in order to give off the light, the candle is being used up. 
the candle is actually giving of itself to extend light to us. And given enough time, it will give itself up completely. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus went around giving himself to others, touching those that others wouldn't touch, extending his love, extending his hope, extending his message. And when it came time, finally giving it all on the cross. But then I got thinking about one problem with this. Jesus did not set up shop in Galilee and say, all right, here's my international headquarters. If you need some light, I have an open-door policy. Just come on in. You read in the Bible, it always says, as Jesus was traveling about, the guy was on the road all the time. And so I thought, what I need to do is bring one of my boys, the little cars, and I'll mount this on top of the car and roll it around up here so you can see it. But then I thought, that doesn't sound very safe, and I don't want to be the guy that accidentally burnt down your church building. So you're going to have to imagine this. Just imagine this candle moving back and forth, going wherever light is needed. But there's a problem. The light that Jesus was shining was limited to wherever he was at the time. And I got thinking, what would it have been like if Jesus had been a twin? So imagine there's two identical Jesuses. Or as the scientists would say, Jesai. So you've got Jesus one up in Israel doing his thing and extending life and healing people, and you got another one down in Egypt doing twice the good. Well, why stop at two? What if Mary had had triplets? Other than just going insane as a mother, there would be Jesus one in Israel and Jesus two in Egypt and Jesus three in Greece. And you can extend that out on and on. And then I got thinking about this. Last night, my family watched the old movie, Back to the Future. Well, what if a brilliant 21st century scientist took all of his materials and got in that time machine and traveled back to Jesus and plucked out one of his skin cells and cloned him and cloned and cloned and cloned until we had hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Jesuses whatever that proper word is, all over the place. Now, that may sound far-fetched and wild, but that is exactly what God did, and it's what he's doing. Jesus said these words recorded in Matthew, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. See, what happens is when you and I become followers of Jesus, the first service this morning, we had a a baptism. What happened is this, this young girl, this young lady, became a follower of Jesus. And that good light of Jesus is absorbed into her life. But we don't just hold on to it and say, oh, thank you, God, for all you've done to me, and let it go at that. We are then transformed by that light, and we become clones of Jesus. He takes us as sinful, selfish, broken, messed up people, and he changes our mind and our heart. Even though we have the same bodies and the same personalities, we become imitations, poor imitations, but imitations of Jesus. And we then are called to go out and be that light into all the corners of the world where you and I will go. 
What does that look like in practical terms? It's a nice theory, nice theology. What does that look like? I want us to watch a video of an example of what being Jesus in this world today might look like. Let's watch. When I first moved to New York City, I thought I knew why I was coming here. It was going to be an adventure. I had my own agenda. I had no idea how much I would fall in love with the kids of the city and how much they would teach me about myself and change my life. I treasure my morning commutes on the subway. It's my time. Sometimes it's my only time with God. In those moments, I know his love for me, and I know that that's going to carry on throughout my day, and I know it's going to help me to do my job well. The Bronx is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. 75% of the people live below the poverty line, and where there's poverty, of course, there's going to be violence and sadness and strife, ugliness. Right in the middle of the Bronx is Middle School 223, where I'm a reading and writing teacher to sixth graders. It's where I spend my days every day. A lot of our kids at our school go home to shelters. They go home to homes where they're in charge. They see people get shot in front of their apartment door. Life has not been easy for them or kind to them. Morning. Good morning. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming in quietly. Many of my students haven't been loved well. They've been abandoned. They've been promised things that have never come. They've been promised relationships with their fathers or mothers that have never happened. And so they're just worn. They're weathered. And they don't trust love. On the first day of school, the first thing that I tell them is, I've been thinking about you all summer. Like, I love you already. You may not believe this, but you can't earn my love. You could make straight A's all year and have perfect behavior all year, or you can get detention three times a week, and I'm going to love you the same. And then I spend all year trying to prove it. So I want you to think back to Monday. We chose that one personal narrative that we're going to publish and celebrate and put out there to the world. Who am I as a person? What do I really want people to know about who I am? Well, it wasn't until recently that I realized that God had been preparing me for this job, for these kids at the school right now. I grew up in Georgia, mostly at my grandmother's house because my mom and dad were divorced. And then when my dad got married, I felt like I wasn't good enough. He, he wanted me to be perfect. I just wasn't good enough anymore. But I know I don't need other people to say I'm okay anymore. I did that my whole life, and I think I'm finally done. So maybe now I can just be Lindsay, and if I make mistakes, then oh well. I'm not only as good as what I do. Growing up, and especially now, even as an adult, I still long for that love and acceptance and 
God has shown that to me and given that to me so that I can go and give these kids the same love and acceptance that they have always wanted too. Over time, I really do believe this classroom becomes a safe haven for them, a place where they feel accepted and they know they're going to be safe and it's comfortable. I think God loves these kids so much, more than I could ever hope to love them. I think he wants them to rest and to be happy. I think he wants to heal their hearts. Every day they walk out of my classroom. And at the end of the year, they walk out of my classroom forever. It's so hard. It's hard not knowing what lies ahead for them or what type of choices they'll make and I just have to rest. I've done everything I could do. I've loved them the best that I can. And my hope is that they'll figure out that God loves them so much more than I ever could. Now, if I'd had time, I wouldn't have had to go to the Internet to find a story like that. I could have just interviewed some of you because you live out that same story. So last week, I had lunch with Steve Roseberry, and we were talking ministry and all these things, and, and he was telling me about his wife, Joy, and how she teaches at a public school, and, and that's her. And that's some of you. In the different places where God takes you every day, you are being used to bring light into people's lives with an encouraging word, a loving touch, just whatever it may be. I think about my wife. She works at Baylor Hospital. Now, we met on eHarmony.com, and when we met, she was telling me about her job, and I was kind of fascinated by it. And as she told me about some of the, the stories of working with, she works with premature uh, babies in the neonatal ICU unit. And there's a lot of success stories, but there's a lot of tragedy and pain also. And, and she told me, just in one of her conversations, she told me about when, when a baby would die and she would stop and pray for the baby. And I thought, why would you do that? The child's already passed away. And, and she said, well, you got to understand, it happens so often that in our world, our culture, it's easy to just, you fill out your paperwork, the body is sent to the morgue. And it helps me remember this was a person that just passed away. And I said, this is a keeper. (laughs) We all have different ways of doing that. I I was thinking about um, in Milwaukee one day, I was coming out of a convenience store, and there was a lady coming in, a postal worker lady. And I was just holding the door open as I was walking out. And she looked up and just smiled and said, you know, it might be a good day after all, and walked on in. Wow. You know, just little things like that. It happens around all the time when we just extend light into people's lives. We are here, my family is here, because you did this for us. When I was working at North Point, we have these three boys. My wife said, I'm going nuts. i got to find a break. And so she said, hey, this Greenville Oaks Church over here, they have a, a Mother's Day Out program. This is during the summer. And I thought, good, you know, get rid of the kids for a little bit. I was thinking it was more just kind of a paid babysitting thing. 
But our kids started to excel and grow and have a great time, and they'd come home telling stories about Jesus. And my wife said, oh, Curtis, it's a, it's a, it's a school, and you've poured your lives into my boys so that this is home. So when we were living here now and we said, where are we going to go to church, this was their church already. You've already been a church that shines that kind of light into people's lives. We had a neighbor living across the street, and she was, we were talking one day, and she said she hadn't had a break from her children in nine years. And we said, well, you know, we send our boys over here to Greenville Oaks Preschool. And she said, tell me about that. And so she, you know, we told her, and, and we said, now you need to understand this is a Christian school because they were Muslim. And she said, that's fine. And so they sent their little boy Solomon over. And I remember coming up to one of the programs one time, and we were up here, and here was Solomon along with my boys and the others singing songs about Jesus. You, know, you shined light into the, our lives and the lives of others. Now, Jesus says something very interesting, though, when he says that you are the light of the world. He says, you know what? Nobody does this. Nobody lights a light and then just covers it up. And I'm left reading the story saying, yeah, that's right, Jesus, nobody does that. So why are you wasting our time telling us about this? Well, the reason he's telling us about it is because in reality that happens all the time with the point he's making. He's not talking about the physical light, but the spiritual light that there are times when people put a bucket over. Well, how do we do that? What does that mean? It's any time that we don't let the light shine out. Now, as I thought about it, I thought, I don't know anybody who does that. Nobody says, I'm not going to shine any light in their life until I look around at some of the things I've said and done. I don't know I'm going to show love to them. I don't want to encourage that kind of lifestyle. I don't know that person deserves love. They don't have the right papers. Sometimes we do it and we don't even know it. Sometimes we do it because what happens is we're so busy with the internals, we never shine it outward. We get so caught up in my schedule and my goals and my direction and what's in it for me and my family. And sure, if I can help a few people along the way, that's great. But it's as if shining light out into others tends to get the leftovers. I've been in ministry now for 24 years. And I've got to say, as I look back over it, I wish I had spent more time focusing out there. I was thinking about at, at, at North Point, we had an office it was a house that we remodeled on some land we bought. There was a little white house next to it. And I remember driving in every day thinking, I need to get over there and talk to those neighbors. It took me three years to just go over there and knock on the door. I got sermons to write. I got schedules. I got deadlines. We get so caught up on the inside, we don't have time to go out. And unfortunately, that tends to be just kind of the way churches are across our country. We focus a lot of energy inward, and that's good. We need to be doing that. We're supposed to love each other and encourage each other, but we need to also be taking it outward. I've thought, I want to see the church that hires staff, some of the staff, who they say, your job is to be the minister to them. We don't want you spending time with church people. We've got others to do that. You be out there. Be the minister to Alan. Be the minister to Richardson. Be the, you know. 
Now, as I thought about this, I thought, as I describe churches that way, as I think about Greenville Oaks, in many ways, that's not your situation. One of the reasons we have been so encouraged by Greenville Oaks is um, a few years ago, you did the, the uh, Love Where You Live. Remember that? And you went out. And there was kind of thing going on around the country called The Churches Left the Building. I love the title y'all came up with. And you found people to go out and serve. No strings attached. No, we're doing this to recruit you, any of that kind of stuff. We just said, we're just here to love you. And I thought, man, that's a great church over there. And so we let's do that over here at North Point. And I hear the stories about how you planted a church in Canada and you're sending people to Houston. It's not to say Greenville Oaks doesn't do that. It's to say you're doing a good job of that. Let's figure out ways to do even more of it. When Keith asked me to preach, he said, here, I want you to read this book. And it's a book you all reading, Deep and Wide. And I read that, and I just got excited reading it. Because it's about how do you make a church for unchurched people? There's plenty of churches in our nation for church people. Where are the churches that are specifically geared for unchurched people. I have a friend in the area, he goes to a church, and he said that church started and grew by the members holding neighborhood cookouts. Just in their neighborhoods, they'd have a cookout and meet their neighbors that way. And over time, as those relationships developed, things got deeper, and eventually some of them came to church with them. But he said, be honest with you, now we're a big church, and we haven't done anything like that in years. The natural tendency is you start outward-focused, and then you turn inward-focused. So as I thought about this idea of putting the bowl over the candle, I thought, let's think about what's happening here. If you were on the inside and I put this bucket over it, instantly it would get very warm in there because the heat's trapped in and it feels good. And it'd get bright because that light's reflecting back and it would feel good for a little bit. But it wouldn't be long before you'd say, hey, it's starting to get pretty hot in here. Have you ever been a part of a church that put off more heat than light? Meaning they were so internally focused, they just fought about everything and picked everything apart, and you just finally say, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. That's not Jesus. Or something else can happen. When I... Uh, was at Target this week. I was trying to figure out how to set this up, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll buy a bucket because I can always use a bucket at the house. Not anymore. That heat melts the bucket. Ever been a part of a church that was so inward-focused it eventually destroyed itself? Where the question stopped being, how does God want to use us to change the world? And starts becoming, how do we keep our members happy and keep these from leaving and those from leaving? And when that happens, over time, eventually it dies. Maybe you've known of churches that put a bucket over the light. And you know what happens if that hole wasn't there. It eventually goes out. Now, it still looks like a church, but if you've gone in, you know, there's no spirit here. There's no light here. And so Jesus is warning us, as his light comes into our life, and we then radiate it back out into other people's lives, we have to be careful because, unfortunately, the human tendency is to start holding on to a little bit of that light for me and for us, and we've got to spend more time on us. 
And so I'm left wondering, what would it look like if Jesus was to move into Allen, Texas? When we went to Milwaukee, I got to tell you, that video, I'd seen it before, and that was one of the things that inspired me. That is Milwaukee. (laughs) Milwaukee is a tough town. And uh, it felt good. Hey, we're going out there in the mission field kind of. And there was a part of me thinking, well, there's not much ministry doing Allen. You know, it's all nice kind of. But uh, you know that's not the way it is. Years ago when I was at Highland Oaks, I was the singles minister. And I got one of those little things in the mail, jury duty. Now, you know what usually happens when you get that. You go, oh. I went, yes, finally, because I think it's pretty cool. You know, you see all these legal dramas on TV. I go, oh, I get to be a part of one. So, you know, I go down to jury duty and I get picked. And it's a, it's a kid, uh, I guess he's right about 18. It was a, a DWI. And so they're going through asking his questions. And he's just kind of nodding off during jury selection. And I'm thinking, you disrespectful little, I'm going to get on this jury and I'm going to nail you to the wall, buddy. Well, I got on the jury. And they started to lay out the case. And I notice, where's his parents? His parents aren't there. And my thought was, where are they? I don't care what. I don't care what my kid does. If he's in court, I'm going to be there. And my heart started to soften for this kid. Now, they, he didn't meet the legal definition of being drunk while driving, and so we found him not guilty, but it was obvious that there were problems in his life. And that weighed pretty heavy on me. By the way, if you're ever on a jury and you go back to the jury deliberation room, don't go to the restroom first, because when you come out, you will be the jury foreman. Um, That's what happened. So so I, I, I come back to the office, and a few days I'm thinking about this, and I go on the Internet, and I found out where he lives. And he lived over here in Plano. And so I drove to his house, and it was a very nice neighborhood where everything is gated and beautiful and perfect. And I went to the door, and his mom came to the door, and I handed her my business card, and I said, um, told her my name. I said, I, I'm, I'm from a church in Dallas, and I work with young people, and I was on your son's jury. And, um, you know, if he needs any help, if there's anything he can do. And I looked in there, and the dad's reading the paper, seemed to not care. I mean, I'm reading a lot into it. It's not right to judge the situation. I don't know. But it just looks kind of cold. And, and she said, thank you very much. She said, in fact, he's not here. We've sent him to Austin because he's got to get around some other friends. And I drove away from there looking at that neighborhood thinking, What's going on in all those other houses? It looks like this is the nice part of town, and it is. But it's also got all kinds of problems and people that need the light of Jesus in their life. And so Jesus is calling us to be that light. When I was at ACU uh, getting a degree, and my professors asked a question, and it has been ringing in my ear ever since. And it was this, what would it look like if Jesus moved into the neighborhood? 
My wife and I have been out house shopping, and we think we found one. What if Jesus was out house shopping, and he moved into a neighborhood? What would he do? How would he live? What would his relationships be like with the neighbors? In fact, my professor put it this way. He said, I would like to see a church that went to its neighborhood, like this street right over here, and just went door to door and said, we're from the church right over here, and we need your help with something. We've kind of lost our way, and we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Could you tell us what it would look like if God moved in the neighborhood? And listen to them and hear their stories and hear what good news, gospel, good news would look like to them. And then we are called on where those things align with the will of God to go and do that. That's what God would do if he was to move into the neighborhood. God has plans for this city and he's going to do it. The question is, will we get to benefit by being the hands and feet and mouth that he uses to touch this city? Thank you, Curtis.